When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you're looking to get a new car, you could really cut expenses by bundling your car and renter's insurance with Progressive. Sure, you love your old car, but you know it's not normal to give instructions on how to open the window. It should be self-explanatory, but it's not. And notice how when you're in other people's cars, you can feel cushion in the seats? That's pretty nice, right? No, it's just normal. So bundle your renters and car insurance with Progressive and put the savings toward a new car. It's time. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. This is Jay Scott, and you were listening to The Hook, the ultimate rock community podcast. Hope everyone's having a nice summer day. I'd like to welcome our guest today, Ms. Sharice Brown, one of my favorite people. How are you doing, Sharice? Jay Scott, thanks for having me. Doing great. I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you very much. So as we begin, we start the show the same way every time we have a guest and it's their first time being here. And that question to you is, just like every great rock song has a hook that sucks you in, every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a song, an album, a band, or a performance, that hooked you on rock and roll. What was your moment? My moment. Okay. Well, I had some, uh, I had some influence leading up to the moment, but the moment was definitely... We, we went to see, I went with my parents actually, to see KISS. It was a KISS Alive tour, so it was 1976. I didn't know who they were. I hadn't heard them before. We had a, a member of REO Speedwagon in our family. So we, you know, just had access to shows and saw them quite a bit. So they opened for KISS and we were backstage. So we were backstage every time we would see REO Speedwagon. I remember it was, it was at night and it was an outdoor concert. I remember it just kind of being like nighttime and all their crazy lights and a stage show. And I was a kid. I was like six. So to me, all this was just fascinating, right? And the guys walking around backstage, makeup, costumes. I'm like, what is this? This is like my fantasy, right? But like when you think about it, and I think about it now, and I'm like, I was six and I was a little girl. Maybe most little girls would be scared by that. So that to me, I think was a defining moment that I was like, I felt at home. Like, this is awesome. 
I love this. I want more of this. I love the music. I had not heard it before, but I'm like, these are my people. It did not hurt that Peter Chris gave me a, ba- a piggyback ride. I don't really remember. That's amazing. It. Yeah. Oh, so well, yeah. Tell that story. <laughs> well, so you know how we got there. Um, you know, RSB Wagon Connection, and uh, we were backstage. It's funny because I remember, like, I mean, literally, I was standing right next to the speakers, couldn't hear a thing. Like, I, you know, I'm sure I lost hearing, like, as, as early as six years old, but I mean, that was it. Another thing I remember is Gene was riding on Paul Stanley's back at one point and they fell, you know, the high boots and all that. Again, new to me, I'm like, these guys wearing these tall boots, like huge, scary looking costumes or what would have been scary, I guess, to most people. I just, I loved it. It was like combination kind of haunted house, dudes wearing makeup, kind of dressed like, you know, ladies or like dolls or whatever it was. Um, I just love the whole thing. Um, and so they fell, like Paul fell, and they were backstage for like 15 minutes or so. Like the show was kind of interrupted. So I remember that. And then Peter Chris was really nice. I do remember looking over at him playing, and he waved. Um, and this, these are things just like now. So, I'm this, like, this so, is so these piggyback rides were happening in the middle of the show, like they came off back, you know, to go backstage. So my piggyback ride from Peter Chris was just because he was a nice guy. And he was like, oh, a little girl back here. We, you know, mm-hmm. we said, 10 words to him or something. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we went piggyback ride. It was, it was awesome. But yeah, it was on stage that uh, Paul gave Gene a piggyback ride and they fell, you know, cause the boots and whatever. So they were, they were backstage for a while. They came back out and everything was cool. You know, Gene did like the blood spitting and all that. I was like, what is this? But I loved, it didn't scare me for a second. I loved it. And I loved the music, just the hard, heavy, um, this was the Love Gun tour, or just this was alive. Oh, this was this alive. Was alive. So this was right before Destroyer. That's right. Okay. That's right. Okay. And I, again, little kid, so I was probably seven by the time Destroyer came out. I got it the Tuesday it came out. One cool thing, I'm very lucky that my dad was a musician, so no holds barred. Like if I thought something was cool, I, I loved Kiss after the show, and I got the Alive record. Which I took, if anybody remembers, I'm sure plenty of people remember, the, the inside, the four-page fold-out thing. I can hear the crinkling of the pages right now. You know, all four of the members wrote letters to the fans, and it had pictures of them. So I took the inside of the LP, Kiss Alive, that little booklet thing, to show and tell. And I talked about my parents taking me to the concert and what happened. I literally, I think my, my teacher didn't say a word. I'm sure she was like horrified. Well, back then, yeah, absolutely. Totally, yeah. I mean, but my parents, like they didn't, they were young when they had me. So they were totally hip. What was your favorite Kiss song? Oh, man. If, oh, it's really hard to pick one because I loved like Deuce, Cold Gin, uh, 100,000 Years. I mean, I literally, that it was that, it was Kiss Alive that kind of got me into them. And then when Destroyer came out, I remember like our record player was on top of this big antique thing we had, and I would sit on top of it. You pick up the needle, you start it over in the beginning. If you sure. want to hear a song again, whatever. And uh, the very beginning of Detroit Rock City, where the car crash, you hear the car crash, mm-hmm. like that came on, and I was just like, "What is this?" I mean, I love them. That was like my hardcore intro, I think, to like this, that kind of music. But you know, the influences before that. I remember being little, three, four years old, and like you know, my dad. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say he liked heavier stuff. Like the Who was playing regularly. Jethro Tull. He he gave me his copy of uh, you know Black Sabbath, Master Reality. So I had a little bit of influence, but you know, in general, it was kind of a music influence. Did you Kiss, have the Kiss phonograph? 
Uh, no, I didn't. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about, but no, I didn't. Oh, that was awesome. I had a Kiss lunchbox, though, in the um, yeah. thermos. Yeah, had that. Okay. Yeah. So Kiss was your first introduction. You had a dad that influenced you a lot on the music you listened to. Where did it go from there after Kiss, 1976? How did you evolve into music in, in more rock music? Good question, because, I mean, think about it. 70s, right? I, I didn't pull up in Google. Bands like Kiss, that wasn't like a thing. I think, I mean, and don't get me wrong, like, so in there also, my influences were from when we would see Ariel Speedwagon. We saw them, you know, at the Checker Dome and Poplar Creek and, you know, some places around the Midwest that, like, aren't even open anymore. The Babies opened for them. I feel like Styx was kind of always around. My influence was from that. And then, you know, Ariel Speedwagon was in there too. And then we'd go to the music store and, like, I know it sounds crazy, but I was seven or eight years old. And the guy in co-op records would say, oh, if she likes, you know, these guys, like, you think she'd want to hear, like, Journey or whatever. It's kind of how that was. Like, I, I don't have a solid memory of, of where that went, but I was always, I was always a solo. I flew solo. My friends did not like or were, you know, not exposed to the same things that I was. But when I was at my girlfriend's house and they would play, you know, Kenny Rogers or, like, the Grease soundtrack, I'm like, this just doesn't fit to me it was like a little bit of a mismatch with my soul that's for sure <laughs> I get that I totally get that because you know my first exposure that I've talked about before was Journey and Judas Priest and Van Halen and Kiss there was not a lot of kids my age listening to what I was listening to six seven eight years old my music history really is because of my brother uh, my brother would bring home a record he was four years older than me I would listen to it and I would like it and I wanted more. So I had to rely on him to really navigate me through that rock and roll journey until I was old enough to start buying my own cassettes or albums and then figuring out the radio station, which was WMET back in the day that I ah. talked about in the first episode. And then it was WVVX uh, later on that only came out at night. So you really had to search and find to listen to hard rock and heavy metal in the early 80s. You got VVX, lucky, because I was in central Illinois, so I didn't find out about that until I went to college. Yeah, I tell the story. I, I was so engrossed in the music. I, it was hard for me to think of anything else. I, you know, I played Little League baseball, and I played other Little League sports, and I loved doing that. But my passion was always the music, and putting that stereo on the other side of the bed with the headphones on at night listening till one o'clock in the morning in fifth and sixth grade and going to Catholic school and trying to get through religion class or English class when I'm dead tired. <laughs> and then all of a sudden coming, you know, after dinner, getting this burst of energy to sit in my room and just listen to the music. My friends were listening to Duran Duran. They were listening to men at work. They were listening to all that pop stuff back yeah. in the day. So they were just not where I was at in terms of music. It wasn't until MTV started to become more popular, and the U.S. festival happened in 83. The band that really brought other kids my age to like that music was Motley Crue. It was a Home Sweet Home video on the request hour on MTV, which I think was like 4 to 5 or 5 to 6. It was right before dinner. Oh, yeah. I 4 to 5, I think I remember that. Yep. Yeah, and Home Sweet Home was the number one requested video for like months Every day. So if you weren't a Motley Crue fan when that run started, you were 
by the time that that run ended. Oh, by yeah. the time I they had to 11, retire, I remember that. And I think it was yeah. eleven times in a row that they won. Maybe more. It no, might have been it more. Was, it was like it was like three months. It was it was it was a long time because it started to become between my brother and I. Oh, do you think Motley Crue's still going to be number one? And they always were on that request line. And what that did is it started to expose other bands during that time. So you got the exposure for Rat, which was who was popular because of Round and Round. But they had the video for Lay It Down and You're In Love. Uh, Black and Blue had a song uh, that was on that request line. There were other bands, too. Y&T with Summertime Girls. It was kind of bringing all those bands with Motley Crue. It was kind of the train. I mean, of course, you had the Twisted Sisters and the Def Leppards and, like I just said, the Rats. Bon Jovi really didn't break yet. It wasn't until, like, 86 with Slippery One Wet. That they really broke on MTV. The Motley Crew 100% paved the way for that. Absolutely. And the funny thing was, like, so YNT, it took a party song. It took Summertime Girls to get them exposure. Mm-hmm. That was what their third, maybe more than they'd been together for a while. I think it's like their fifth record. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They've been together for a while. And like Rat, they were huge and had way heavier stuff. Like, what is it? Uh, like, I don't know, Way Cool Junior or something. Actually, I didn't really care That's for that not, song. Yeah, that was but later that on. Was, right. It was later on, but I think it was like written and recorded five or six years earlier or something like that. It was, like it was. And right. Rat, I mean, they were like right up there with, I loved Robin Crosby and still Warren Martini. Great guitar um, player. Big time. And like they were always underrated, but yeah, I had to kind of throw that in there. But um, I mean, I think, so it sounds like your brother was a big influence on you. Between like Kiss Alive, you know, the story I said about Destroyer and stuff like that, it was probably four or five years. I remember sixth or seventh grade um, when, well, seventh grade, when I heard Too Fast for Love. I was very fortunate. I had a buddy who was like, yeah, you like music. Like, you know, again, like flying solo. So if anybody, it was mostly guys, usually would be like, oh, you like music? Let's want you listen to this. Um, he had just moved from California and was like, there's this huge band. They're everywhere. Everyone loves them. You're going to love them, I think, based on your, on your taste. So, and it, it was Motley Crue, Too Fast for Love. Well, that's what brings us to our topic for today's episode, which is the Motley Crue Dirt movie. I don't want to say we're going to review it, but we're definitely going to discuss it, what it meant to us to finally see it on a screen, although a small screen, and what it was like growing up during that time when all these things were happening. So let's begin with the Motley Crue Dirt discussion. So you and I had talked about this prior to it coming out, and we were both excited. We were looking forward to it. It was years in the making. I remember when the headlines first came out, probably about a decade ago, Yeah, that the rights to the movie had been sold, or the rights to the book had been sold to be made into a movie. And it had gone through different production companies or different studios, and it finally landed on Netflix doorstep. And they decided to move forward. I know it was kind of hooked in with MTV for a while, MTV mm-hmm. Films. I think there were other couple studios. Was it Warner Brothers or 20th Century Fox, Paramount maybe? I think it was Paramount yeah. that, that picked it up. And the parameters, as they kind of got down to it, um, the parameters were not acceptable to Nikki Six, at least according to what he said when he uh, decided to go with Netflix. And that's really interesting because Nikki Six has been the driver of this movie, since since the book came out. And I give him credit for waiting to find the right studio to make this because you can't tell this story in any other way like the book did. I know there's some 
differences and how things happen, and we'll talk about those. But they didn't take away from the essence of the book, and it didn't take away from their story. Well, the essence of Motley Crue. He, Absolutely. He's always said, true to ourselves, fuck everybody else, we're doing what we want to do. He had to. I'm glad he waited to um, have the movie made under those parameters because that wouldn't have been true to, to him or the crew. Yeah, for. and I also like the fact that it wasn't like the Queen movie. I love the Queen movie. It is great. It is awesome. Yep. The Queen movie is made how you would think a Queen movie would be, right? It's very polished. It's very... Yeah, for the audience. It's, yep. it's, yes, absolutely. The Motley and for Crue, the critics. Right, and for the critics. Yeah. The Motley Crue movie is made the way a Motley Crue movie should be. For the fans. For the yeah. fans, and <laughs> it's not the critics. And, and <laughs> when this movie came out, you would read the reviews of whatever douchebag elitist that was discussing this movie, and it was just the wrong person to be talking about this. Someone who doesn't remember any of it, who has an elitist view of music. Sounded like an outsider to sounded me. Sounded like a complete sounded outsider. Like, yeah. But when you look at the popularity on the Netflix reviews and how many fans loved it, that's your that's your story right it was, there. It was Rotten Tomatoes, like 99% for the fan like right. approval, and then right. the critic approval was 50%. Right. Nikki was like, that did exactly what it was supposed Absolutely. to do. Absolutely, yeah. because that's what the essence of crew has always been, like you just right. said, is, is fuck the credits, we're going to do it our way, and they did it. Are there some issues I have with the movie? Yeah, and, and I guess you know, no movie is going to be perfect. My issues with the movie, and we've talked about it. Let's get the issues out of the way, because then we'll talk about the good <laughs> stuff. The issues I have are that, A, it's not long enough. Oh, yeah. Because I think there's so much more that they could have told and gone really and, and dived really into that story. So do you, felt, do you feel like it was abbreviated? Because I do. I do. And I felt like I was in a marathon. It starts off laying the groundwork for the story. You know, Nikki Six. With you know his childhood and being and the, and the scene in L.A. meeting Tommy Lee at the diner, I don't know if that's all true or not, but that's the way it was depicted in the story. And then it just felt like a sprint. It felt like boom, 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 boom. And it was a splash of everything too. Right, they right. didn't really dive into any. Right. Even the characters weren't totally developed the way that we all know them. If you're a fan, yes, yeah. yes, I totally agree. Because when I got done watching the movie, I watched it by myself because. I didn't want to be distracted. I didn't want to be annoyed by someone going, did that really happen? Or, you know, I I just, I'll do that later with people. But I just felt, like you said, it felt like a splash of things. And every moment in in the movie was happening, every time I realized, oh, yeah, I remember this. I remember this when this happened. Like, I remember the Circus Magazine with Vince Neil's mugshot. On it. Remember the cover of that? Yeah. I do remember yeah. that. And I remember because my family, I, I or my aunts and uncles and cousin, lived close to Redondo. They lived oh, in wow. they lived in Palos Verdes. Really? And that was big news. That was when that was that was huge. Yeah, they were an up and coming band. They they did not reach their pinnacle yet of their success. They were a huge MTV band at the time. They were a huge rock band. It was after US Festival. It was after all these things. And controversial. And very controversial. You know, I remember Shout at the Devil. I remember watching things on TV in like 20, 20 or 60 minutes of these ministers burning the record. Completely not understanding what the song was about. Even I, the, just break down the phrase. I, I know we're not talking about this, but Shout at the Devil. Right, Come on, guys. Right, right. Yeah. And then there was the poster. 
That was the Shout Out the Devil poster, which my mother forced me to take down, which had the pentagram on it. Oh, yeah. And I remember hanging that up and right above my bed. And I remember going, wow, that is the coolest thing that I own. I was <laughs> nine years old. And my, my mother dropped me and my friends off at the mall. And there was a store in the mall that sold posters and music memorabilia. Oh, yeah. Ours was called Coach House. Yeah. Yeah. I forget. I think it was called like Popery or something like that. It was a really odd name. I remember flipping through the posters and in between the Heather Thomas bikini posters and the pink bikini, the yeah. P- yeah, the pink bikini and all this stuff. There was this Motley Crue poster, which had like a red border on the top and the bottom. And it had the picture, the four pictures of exactly the, what you're talking about. I totally remember yeah, that. Yeah. It had the four pictures of all the members and they had the pentagram, like I think at the top and then the Motley Crue was at the top and then shout the devil was at the bottom. Yep. And I'm like, that is so awesome. And I bought it, hung it up. And I remember admiring my work. I taped it really, I made it nice and even as best as I could. And I had the door shut and I just laid <laughs> on my bed being proud of myself that I hung a poster on my wall and the poster was Motley Crue, even before I had a kiss poster, which was the next one. And I remember my mother knocking on the door to let me know dinner was ready. And she opened the door and she's like, yeah, it's dinner's ready. What the hell is that on your wall? I go, that's Motley Crue. You need to take that down. Okay, but what was it? Was it the imagery? Was it the way they looked? Was it was the pentagram. Makeup? A pentagram. Okay. And they were devil below. Strictly. Okay, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, for a nine-year-old going to Catholic school, that was a big no-no. And what you just said, so that's exactly back then, as we found out, that's what Nikki Six wanted to happen. Right, right, right. So I ended up taking the poster off the wall above my bed, and I put it on the back of the door. <laughs> so my mother could never see it. When she opened the door... And that's why I always close my door at nine years old. How did that work? Did it work? It worked. It worked for about a good, I don't know, five, six months. And then by that time, I think she just lost the motivation to care (laughs) when she saw it. Because I think she admired the fact that I was pretty resourceful and figured it out that if I put it here, she could never see it. Yeah. So out of sight, out of mind. I remember the imagery being very important for Motley Crue. Getting back to some of the issues. So... Didn't think it was long enough. Didn't think they really dived into the stories that were happening, the moments that were happening in their history and the members of the band. Because we talked about this a couple months ago after it first came out. There's so much going on with all four of those guys. Every member has a story. Every member has tragedy in their life. Mm-hmm. Nikki Six, we all know that. He's been very forthcoming about things. Tommy Lee who's been a subject of tabloids for years. We all know that. Yep. Mick Mars with, with, with his disease. Yep. And, of course, Vince Neil with the accident, with the death of his daughter. So there's so much, I hate to use the word pain with those guys. I don't know if that's the right word, but there's so much, there's so many things that have happened to them that to just kind of gloss over them, or not give them the proper moments that it needed, I thought it lost something because of that. Yep. And that's why I think it should have been a miniseries. Netflix right. should have done like five two-hour episodes each week for like five or six weeks. Or five or six years. I mean, if <laughs> true hardcore fans, like I could just watch them forever, just dive into each one of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, those things were, they definitely, again, that felt like a flash in the pan because they 
did review or feature everything that you just mentioned, but it was a quick, it was right. very quick. You know, Mick mentions once in the beginning. Yeah, so long before I met them, you know, diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis. Which I did not know. I, I forgot that in the book. I didn't know that he was diagnosed with that prior to joining the band. I thought that was something that happened as their success, as they became successful after they broke up the first time, you know, after Vince Neil left and then after Tommy Lee left. I thought that happened after all that stuff went on. I think he said he was 19. If he didn't say it in the movie, he said in the book that he was 19. Mm-hmm. And then in the book he talks about he had a rough upbringing. He's from Indiana, Crown Point maybe or something. Something like that. And he talked about sleeping on the floor. I think he had to sleep on the floor. Well, he was homeless, shed. right? He was homeless for a while, but even when he was and had a home, quote, home, I don't think uh, he had the best relationship with his parents, and he was sleeping on the dirt floor of their shed at one point. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he said, like, I always wonder. I know he made a comment about it. Like, I wondered if my disease came from that, or I wonder if it went back that far, or something like that. So Okay, okay. Yeah, that was interesting. And Mick is such an interesting guy. He's a quiet guy. doesn't do a lot of press, doesn't do a lot of interviews. He's a very underrated guitar player. A guitar player that I have learned to appreciate as I've listened to more of his music and listened to other guitar players. Tone is very important to Mick. Yep. And I think that's a huge part of his style. There's no one that sounds like him. And that really is the essence of a great guitar player. If, if you have recognizable sound, the moment somebody hears a lick or a chord you play, that's what you want. And oh, I think he's the unmistakable definitely unmistakable McMars. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. He, there's a super recent interview with him. I think I ran across it on YouTube the other day. It was like Ernie Ball has like a show or something. So he was saying, I've gotten to the point where, and this was always my goal, like it sounds like there's two guitars. Mm-hmm. It's right on. Yeah. yeah Mick is uh, very special. I think the coolest thing to me was he's always kind of like the quiet, um, understated guy, you know, just sits back and all oh, those guys are going to get in trouble. And then he's got like the quick zingers in the in the dirt. You know, it's depicted like he's like, he's not going to make it. Nikki's like, tell him. Yeah, there there was that article that came out a month or two ago with Jakey Lee stating that. Oh, which I number one. Okay, why wait all these years to say that? It appears to be sour grapes. I mean, sure, it's... sure, because he was part of Rough Cut back in the day. He was also part of the original Rat. Yeah. Um, of course, he ended up in Ozzy. Yep. But he, he had was only... Badlands for a, a Badland, minute which was or a two great band. That. Badlands I is a, it's like a phenomenal I like band too. Yep. And I always liked his work in Ozzy. He wasn't in Ozzy for a long time. I know there's some issues with Sharon and Jake uh, over writing songwriting credits and, and, and whatnot, but sour grapes or trying to remain relevant. I, I just didn't see the, the purpose. So what did he say? So we can tell everybody what yeah, uh, he the said, conversation was. He basically was in an interview. Uh, I don't know if it was, I think it was on YouTube or something like that or on a podcast. And he mentioned that Motley Crue had wanted him to replace Mick after the, was, I don't know if it was the Theater of Pain album or if it was even earlier than that. Around then, yeah. Maybe maybe it's between Shout Out the Devil and Theater, I right, think, yeah. Right, So my thoughts on that were a couple things. Let's say, let's for argument's sake, let's say a conversation like that did happen, okay? Now, you also have to put into context the condition of Motley Crue, probably when they had that conversation. Was it just an off-the-cuff remark, a joke? More than likely, it probably was, if it happened at all. Yeah. 
it was not probably something that was serious. If they were serious with that, knowing Nikki and knowing the strong personalities of that band, mm-hmm. there's no doubt that if they really wanted that, they would have pushed forward and, ha- and made that happen. Oh, absolutely. I think during that time frame, you can't take anything seriously that right. could have come from that. Right. They were, you know, Doc McGee was like, I can't believe, you know, we're even thinking of sending them to Europe on another sure. tour. Somebody's going to come back in a body bag. I think, mm-hmm. well, I mean, we know that kind of happened with Nikki, you know. Right. So I was a little disappointed in that because I just felt that the timing of it just seemed odd. And this has never that has never come up at all. Yeah. He's done so many interviews, especially since he's come back to public life. He was very underground for a while, Jake E. Lee. And then to all of a sudden say this, when the movie's out, not when the book came out, not when they knew the movie was being made, I just felt that it was... Interesting timing, at probably, minimum. Yeah. yeah. I, Too bad. I, I, I smell a lot of bullshit on that, yep, you know? Yeah, Well, even even Sebastian Bach, when he said, well, at one point they asked me to, you know, replace Vince Neil. Like, what? Like, okay. That was two years ago, right? Didn't he make that comment, like, two years ago? Two or ago? three years ago. Yeah. But didn't Nikki Six also say in an interview that they were playing with a lot of different people? Kind of. Kind you know? of. He didn't. He didn't come out, and he didn't. And he didn't deny it, and he didn't confirm it. Right. Um, he kind of like told a gray story around it, so it could have something like that could have happened. Yeah. Right. And maybe they jammed with him, or, or and, and whatnot, and and nothing came of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You have to remember, Nikki, especially, was in a different state of mind back then. Yeah. Yeah. All those guys were. They were dealing with the turmoil of a new lead singer. Um, or replacing Vince Neil. How about the comment in The Dirt when Tommy says, we can replace him. Van Halen did that. They replaced their lead singer. And Nikki's like, you say that every single time. He's late for rehearsal. Yeah, that was... Interesting detail to put in, I right, thought. Right, right. And I think a lot of bands who did end up replacing the larger-than-life larger character or larger-than-life person in the band looked at Van Halen as kind of the example but, you know, because they kind of set the bar. They didn't miss a beat. This episode's not about Van Halen, but when you do compare Daily Roth leaving, who was the face of rock music at that time, 1984, the biggest rock album to date in that decade. The only reason why it wasn't number one was because of Michael Jackson's Thriller. He was ginormous, and he and no one's bigger than the band. But if there was ever a case where that may have happened, it was that moment right there. Because people really recognize with Daily Roth. They saw Daily Roth on television, instantly thought of Van Halen. So when bands were replacing their lead singers or their guitar players, I'm sure they did look at Van Halen as, well, look at them. They replaced them with Sammy Hagar, and then they had a number one record with 5150. Okay, number one record is one thing. I love Sammy Hagar. I loved Montrose. I did love David, I do love David Lee Roth. Unchained is not dreams. That's what dreams are made of, whatever that song is. They're two different bands. Right. I I unsubscribed at that point. And even though The Dirt didn't really address it too, too much, when Motley Crue, Motley Crue came out, I remember with John Karabi, I'm like, I've got to hear this, can't wait. Left my office, it was like my first job out of college. Like I remember it was 3.30, they were going to play whatever the new release was. I think in about five seconds, I was like, that's it. I'm done. I didn't listen to the rest of the song. Went back in my office and I was like, that's too bad. Not going to buy that record. Not supporting these guys anymore. I officially turned my back on them. I don't, you know, and you know, the crew fan 
community feels lots of controversy about this, a lot of different opinions. I'm one who, you know, you guys, they say it themselves. I'm like, you guys, the four of you together make what is so awesome about Motley Crue. It's not because Vince's vocals are so amazing. Not because Nikki's such an awesome bass player. He's the first to say that. I do think Tommy Lee's an amazing talent. I love him. Mars, which we talked about, one of a kind, just amazing. Right, right. But the four of them together is what makes them Motley Crue. So after the Jerk came out, talking with a couple of my friends, and somebody said, Ugh, like, yeah, look what Nikki Six has turned into. And I was like, oh, no, you're, I don't know many 60-year-old guys who, who still look good as Nikki does. What I loved about him, and it was probably back to 1976 when I saw Kiss, Nikki snarled and spit and whatever, and I'm like, he's badass like that's i love them because of right that. right so um, well they always talk they about being a gang yeah, you know and, right. and and they really depict that well in the yeah. movie you know it was a band of brothers yeah. it was you know they they came up and they lived it they lived the dirt you know like they got dirty so to speak they yeah. lived in these uh, rundown apartment with infested with cockroaches and had all these parties and garbage piled up and the door broken down and it was the essence that's like the that's the engine right there of crew that's the attitude that propelled them into this stratosphere of mega huge rock stars right right and i love the the you know we talked about van halen one last thing the love the connection with dave lee roth that's in the book and that's has a quick scene in the movie what's everybody looking at yeah yeah (laughs) Well, I forget what the nickname Tommy talks about it, I believe. He talks about David Lee Roth coming to the parties before they made it. And they called they, they they gave him a nickname because his drug use that he was on, the, the cocaine, he never would spill the cocaine in this sea of people. That's right. That's I right. What was, the, I do too. I don't I can't remember, remember the name. name. I do remember that, yeah, that story. That, yeah. So I remember that story. And it was kind of cool how they put him in the movie, the character David Lee Roth in the movie. Um, but, you know, getting back to the story of the dirt, the four guys, we talked about Mick, Vince Neal, one of the most biggest tragedies at that time was the car accident with Razzle yeah, from Razzle. Hanoi Rocks yeah. and how that impacted Motley Crue fans and how it impacted their moment. It was a very sad thing that happened. I remember I, I wasn't really familiar with Hanoi Rocks until that happened. I remember reading the article in Circus Magazine or Hit Parader mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and reading, I'm like, oh, I never heard. I'm like, Hanoi Rocks, it's this Finnish band. Checked them out. I liked them. Mm-hmm. But they were yeah, on a, they, they had just started to tour America. They were just coming to their own. Totally. Right, right. Yeah. And it was a tragedy. And I, like I said, I still remember that Circus Magazine with the cover it was either circus or hip but I think it was circus. And they had the mugshot with, with Vince Neal. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, man, he's going to jail. Motley Crue's done. Yeah. There's just no That's way. That's what happened to people when they would get DUIs, and certainly if somebody lost their life because right. of it back then. Right. Yeah. If that happened today, there's no way he would have only served, what, a month? Yeah. It was that, you know what? It was actually, he was sentenced to 30 days, and I think he served 13 days. Yeah. that's yeah. That doesn't happen today. And... um could be on a separate topic, but he had, you know, there were a guard, he made friends with a guard or two in jail and he had fans visiting him. Side note, but. <laughs> oh, you know, money can buy happiness in certain moments, you know? I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> that's the thing is like the dirt, like how do you, how do you choose to, to live with the money that comes your way that you don't expect? And like, 
these guys, I think, just got kind of swept up in that. Like, it's very easy to do that, especially yeah. you know people that age at that time. Vince Neil's life, though, is really the subject in that movie that I really don't think it does enough for because there is a lot of tragedy and there is a lot of sadness that's happened since that moment or since he's been part of Motley Crue. Yeah. You look at, obviously, the car accident. You look at the death of his daughter. You look at the troubled relationships that he's had over the years for the past few decades. That's a man that's got a lot inside of him. Mm-hmm. And a lot of things maybe he hasn't forgiven himself. He even talks in Behind the Music where you know he basically bought himself out of jail. And he you said, can, I was the OJ of, of current times. Right. Or I was the OJ back then. Right. Yeah. And he, you can detect a little bit of sorrow in that, in, when, he, when he says that, because he, he, I think he knows he should have done more time. Yeah, there's a lot of remorse. A I lot mean, of remorse. They don't forget, though, in the dirt, they skipped 20 years. They did show, this is how they ended up on the end tour, mm-hmm. but there was 20 years in between there. They stopped, really, at the late, uh, mid, mid-90s, really, right. when the Karabi stuff was. So they skipped 20 years. Again, why we needed a lot more Right, the there's dirt. so much. We haven't even talked about Tommy and Nikki yet. Right. But just finishing up with Vince, he's a very complex guy. When you think of Vince Neil, the casual observer may just think, oh, he's a singer of Motley Crue, he's, you know, he's a buffoon or whatever. There's a lot there. And, I, and, and his story really is something that I would just love to see and love to be talked about because I think there has to be a moment of understanding when it comes to Vince Neil that, yes, a lot of his tragedies were self-inflicted. Obviously not his daughter, which is a moment in the movie with, with, that's just very tragic. That's when I watched yeah. it after that, I fast forward through. I can't. Yeah. That's a very tough sad. thing, especially, you know, how he's talked about it in interviews in the past and you know how painful that was. He still has that foundation. Yep. In the golf tournament. Every right. Year. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's a, that's a subject that definitely warranted more time to talk about and to show. And that's again, you know, why we need a, a miniseries. They could just do one episode of that miniseries on the breakup. You know, the back and forth yeah. was, I was fired, no, you quit, you know, all that stuff. And get everybody's perspective on that. Everyone's, right? because they kind of do talk about that in the dirt, the different perspective. And that's what the unique way it was presented, the unique presentation of that book. I had never re- re- read anything like how that was written until I read that book. Mm-hmm. The way it had each member From telling each of their perspectives. Each of their yeah. perspectives and you had other people Even telling. In the book, they say he's like, no, I was fired. And they're like, yes, he quit. Yes. Yeah. And I th- and I think that was that's why I read it. And it took me like a day and a half to read that because I couldn't put it down. Yeah. So Vince needed more time. Mick needed more time. Tommy, of course, you know, he's probably at that time during the height of their popularity, he was the face of Motley Crue. He was the name that everybody knew, largely yeah. because of the, the the marriage to Heather Locklear. Right. I mean, she was a prime time A plus celebrity at the time, right? Right. Like she was television. Dynasty. T J Hooker. She was on. She revived like Aaron Spelling series or whatever. Was it Melrose Park, Melrose, Melrose Place, Place. Yeah. And then before that, she was on Dynasty. But yeah, she supposedly brought back Melrose Place from um, heading toward being canceled and stuff like that. Right. So, right. Yeah. Now, was she still married to Tommy when that happened, or was that after? I don't remember. When what happened? Melrose Place. Um, what years were those? No, she wasn't because that was like 
mid nineties, right? I think so. Mid to late nineties, I think was my yeah, place. Yeah. 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 But he was the face largely because of the tabloids, because of Heather Locklear. You know, Tommy is, from what I see, I don't know him personally, obviously, but he is the good time Tommy. He is the big heart. What did Doc McGee say? Low IQ, high RPMs. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that's the perfect way to, to, to describe him. But again, he's had a lot of pain in his life. You know, you look at him going to jail. Yeah. With uh, when he was married to Pam Anderson or yeah. going through the divorce. Drama with that relationship. A lot of drama. Like. And that's something I kind of want to touch on too. I know there was a big thing about four months ago with the interview that Pamela Anderson did and talked about her time with Tommy Lee. And there was a big pushback against Tommy Lee. And I was really upset about that because we're in the midst of the Me Too movement. I get it. I get that there are bad men out there who use their power for disgusting things in disgusting ways. I, I, those people should be exposed. But Tommy did his time. Tommy went to jail. Yep. Tommy has not been in trouble since then, right? He has not gone to jail. He hasn't had any issues. I'm sure he has, but nothing that's been... You're talking about the domestic violence stuff, yes, right? Yes, yes. So when I was on Nikki Six's blog back in, I mean, like in the beginning of blogs, so this was 90... 99, 2000, there was maybe 100 people on there. So it was like a chat room. It was essentially like Nikki's chat room. And so Donna used to contribute, Donna Dierico, because they were married at the time, mm-hmm. Nikki, Nikki and Donna were. They were super. Now, I know for sure Donna and Pam are friends. I see them like communicating on, in, on social media and stuff like that. But her pipe-ins were, we went to court with Tommy. We backed him. Um, we've been there when Pam has contributed also. She's been, you know, this isn't me gossiping. This was firsthand. Like I, I was reading it, right? And she was she was writing it. And it was important to them, um, you know, being regular kind of up close and personal friends with Tommy and Pam, mm-hmm. that everyone knew that Pam totally contributed. So I don't, yeah, she needs to give him a break. Like it seems circumstantial. He's right. had issues and stuff with didn't you do something to do with the photographer? But that was during that period too, right? It was Pam. She, I mean, so, okay, so Vince Neil says on, what was it on? It might have been their um, uh, their MTV. Documentary, Behind the Music? Thank you, yeah, Behind yeah. the Music. She said, uh, sorry, Vince said, hey, if you're going to be with a high-profile celebrity, get ready. It's 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 coming. She was, you know, Baywatch was huge. She was the first of kind of the bombshells. She created the look of like, well, not create, she recreated the look right. um, of like, you know, platinum hair, big, huge boobs, fake boobs. Like oh, she made all that stuff kind of popular yes, again. Yes. So she was just like this sex symbol and sure, you know, fun loving Tommy. It all seemed fun and games, but like, yeah, dude, photographers are going to follow you everywhere. Mm-hmm. Every step you make. So Maybe he wasn't totally, you know, prepared for all that. And I'm not, I'm not defending. No, ever, like, I mean, obviously domestic, violence, domestic but, violence is a horrible thing, Yeah, but we also tend to judge a person at their worst moment than at their best. Right. And yeah. that was probably one of Tommy's worst moments. But like I said, he's largely been out of trouble since then. Yep. Nothing like that. That's right. I don't remember any other domestic charges coming against them. And I even believe right. the judge in his case, made mention to the issues with him being married to Pam and how all these issues are coming up since he's been in this he relationship. He said you seem to, these things seem to follow you in this relationship or something. Yes, I comment. do remember that. Yeah, I me do, too. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing is, is 
why go on TV and start talking about this when this happened 20-some years ago? She might be trying to get attention. Exactly. Yeah. And again, he paid his dues. He did time. He went to jail for it. Leave him alone. Yeah. Why all of a sudden bring this up? There's no reason to do that. Like I said, it's 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 something that is part of the Motley Crue legacy, more Tommy's legacy. Yeah. But I just don't think it is necessary. There was right. no point in bringing it up. Um, th- there's a great story, if you're familiar with Butch Walker, who's one of my favorite artists. He produced Tommy's solo record, Tommy Land. And there's a great story about him hanging out with Tommy Lee. It involves Tommy Lee, a helicopter, and Slash's house. So if you ever get a chance to read Butch Walker's book, Drinking with Strangers, okay, it's a quick read, just like the dirt is. It's a great story. It's very entertaining. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, yeah. But again, more depth to Tommy's character. Tommy comes off, or people to think of Tommy as this brainless, high-energy guy. And again, he's not. He's a very real, honest guy. And he wears his emotions on his sleeves. You can always see his Twitter posts and his Instagram posts, you know, where he reacts to something. He doesn't hold back. He does not hold back. But the way his family life was depicted, and I'm a huge fan of his sister, Athena. She's the greatest. I think she's mm-hmm. awesome. And so you can kind of see and she, the stuff that she talks about about their family and stuff like that, too. You can see that his parents were together forever. So they had this, like, home life that was like a real home life. Mm-hmm. The family was together. They all lived together, not broken apart, any of that kind of stuff. So... I think he kind of, it's like from a genuine place. Yes. It seems like. Yes. Yeah. And then last, there's Nikki Six, who mm. is now the face of Motley Crue. You know, when the 80s and. CEO of Motley Crue. Right. Yeah. You know, it, it is now Nikki. But now, back in the day when you thought of Motley Crue, you immediately thought of Tommy Lee. Now you immediately think of it's, Nikki Six. It's odd, dude, because I had no idea. Like, CEO of Motley Crue and all the story behind um, On With The Show. Frankie, I thought he was writing about some friend or some I did not know that to the, Yeah, I did not know that yeah. to the movie either when they... I didn't know he was the mastermind behind Motley Crue. I knew none of these things. Right. I knew these just raw-looking dudes who, like, looked different, sounded different, were super raw, you know, just like, that's all I knew. I didn't know that this was all him. Um, well, I remember watching interviews with Doc McGee over the years and him mentioning how important Nikki's vision was to the success of Motley Crue. So... I always thought that it was kind of out there on the on the kind of the edges of the Motley Crue story. But as this movie has gone into production and then it was released and the book was written and released, it became more of a without Nikki Six, Motley Crue does not become what they have become. Yeah. Who knew? Right. 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 Yeah. And, and he also wrote a lot of the lyrics. I think all the lyrics he wrote. There's I mean, there I think finally by like maybe girls 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 they a few of them got like they all got credit on a couple of songs right but, for the yeah. lyrics i know the music mick wrote a lot and i know nikki wrote a lot with mick on the music but the lyrically i want to say like all four of them had their name on the lyrics for home sweet home uh, okay maybe okay. i'm maybe i'm misquoting right. that we're smart to do that because they all probably made a, a nice chunk of change yeah with that exactly but nikki as i've seen evolve Right, we talked about the attitude of Nikki and the spitting and the growling and his stage presence. I remember the Wild Side video where he's rolling down the stage, oh, yeah. and then the Home Sweet Home video where he's you know spinning his he's spinning and he's got the guitar he's whipping the guitar around. I always 
sense the anger inside of him. Yeah. There's a lot of pain with him. You talk about in the movie or, or you see in the movie the relationship with his mother, the non-existing relationship with his father. He even talks about it on Instagram and Twitter, how he's trying to heal from that whole process and get to a point where he can forgive his father. Yeah. And it's a work in progress, and he even admits that on posts and in interviews. And there's a lot of depth there. There's a lot going on with Nikki, just like there is with everybody. But one of the things that I like about where Nikki is now, he seems to finally be comfortable in his own skin. Well, he's also been sober for 18 years. I right. want to say last week or sometime this week maybe it was 18 years for him. So I think he started emotionally processing things just 18 years ago in his 60 years on the earth, right? Right. So, and he said, uh, like you said, he's I never could get a connection with my mom. Even she died and I still didn't get that. And an unresolved issue like that can be very painful. Yeah. You know, your mother is supposed to be your protector supposed to nurture you supposed to one person unconditional all that kind of stuff right and to have that unresolved and to have her pass on like that without resolving that that issue the all the issues he had with her that's got to be tough to overcome i credit him because he's very honest he talks about a lot he talks a lot about mental illness he talks a lot about depression on his posts he seems to be a guy who finally comfortable with himself. He's got a wonderful family. He's got looks like to be wonderful kids. I'm sure like being a dad, he's always talked about being a right, dad's really important right. to him. And I'm sure like every family they have issues. I mean, Tommy Lee had the issue with his son. And I know yeah. there was a lot of social media opinions on it, like, oh, you know, this but quite honestly, if you really st- have studied the the structure of a family with a father and a son, that is normal where the son challenges the father. It's like, it's like being the king of the jungle, right? <laughs> it is. The lion's the king of the jungle. <laughs> Usually what happens is one of the, the sons of that lion will challenge the king of the jungle at some point. And it's the same thing. I forget what they call it, but therapists will tell you, family therapists will tell you that that is a normal, that's not abnormal it's just a kid growing up it's a boy growing up yeah and of course he's in his early 20s Tommy's kid or whatever yeah but that is that is more common than people think the 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 eldest son or one of the sons challenging the father you know exercising their independence becoming an independent man that is something that happens a lot wasn't it uh Brandon sticking it for his mom too it was yeah yeah sticking it for Pam but yes that was the story told to the media. Well, whether, who knows, right? Whether that's true or not, we don't know. And I don't want to. Although he did post a bunch of stuff, right? Like on his, it right. kind of did look like that, right? And of course, Pam was Pam was posting some stuff too. But I don't want to speculate what the reasons were. The fact is that it happened. It's unfortunate. A lot of families have dealt with that, and it is a moment in any family that has dealt with that, where there's been a physical altercation between a son and a father or a mother and daughter or whoever it is, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to get through. With that being said, it sounds like they resolved it. Hopefully they... Well, what you haven't mentioned, though, is substance abuse is still in here somewhere. You yeah, know? yeah. And, and to what extent, you know, we don't know. Um, you know I mean, I'm, Nikki at, mentioned, at one point mentions, I don't know if it's in the dirt, but it, at some point he said, you know, we spent our time where we didn't see eye to eye. Tommy didn't understand my... Um, commitment to sobriety 
And I think they say that in the, the final tour documentary where they're talking, yes. the speaking parts. I think they say it there. And there was also, I don't want to call it a Twitter war because I don't think it was that. But there were also some comments back and forth after the final show where Nikki left and Tommy stayed around, you know, did what Tommy does, have a good time. Yep. And he said, I can't believe Nikki went home. And Nikki says, I was home in 20 minutes. Right. Believe me, though, I felt it. We were at the final show. I was hoping for a lot more energy and a lot more. Like, you know, Vince Neil cri- uh, cried and mm-hmm. teared up more than once. got emotional. I didn't really see it with the rest of the guys. So, I think being in, so- in a relationship where there's four different personalities, four strong personalities, it's hard to... It's, it can be exhausting having four alpha males, because they all seem to be that way, dealing with each other in a toxic environment that involves drugs and booze and a lot of pain between all four of them. They so all- that pain between all four of them, that leads to they each want it in different ways and to different extents the whole time throughout the whole Motley Crue career. Right. Right. So like when I think back to the dirt and I don't remember the details from the book about how, about them walking up to that party and seeing Vince uh, singing a cover a Billy Squire cover. Right. I don't remember if that, in fact, I don't think that was exactly how it happened, but that's how it was depicted in the movie. Right. Right. So at that point, you know, they're just like, we just want to put this band together. And then here we are like 40 years goes by and like, it's like they've forgotten it. It's just so sad because from the outside, I'm just like, they changed my life for sure. Yes. I identified with them for like the reasons that, you know, I said before, it just it spoke to me and it was my, this is my soul. This is my, you know, all the pain and stuff that he was talking about in his songs. I'm like, I'm not sure where that comes from, but everybody's got something like this because I was like 12. But there was so, you know, when you, when you have heavy drug use and you have a lot of alcohol and there's a lot of partying and there's a moment where, real reality becomes very distant because you become, you, you, you live in your own bubble and you have a different sense of things. Each guy in that band probably has a different perspective on what happens. Hence how the book was written. Yep. When each individual has their own individual pain as all four members have, Mm -hmm. and then there's the pain that they have as they're intertwined with each other. You know, Vince mentions that, no one ever apologized to him. Mm-hmm. They show the scene in the movie where Nikki doesn't tell him it's heroin and he snorts heroin. Um, yeah. you, they, they, they talk about, you know, how Vince, you know, says that no one ever apologized to him for not being there for when the car accident happened, yep. when his daughter died. So I know Vince has a lot of resentment. In fact, I know someone that was, and at he was the, like, those guys were drinking, doing drugs right in front right, of me when I right. was trying to be sober. Yeah. So there's a lot of, and I know when Tommy left after, was it Generation Swine? Yeah. Was it two, uh, two, it was 99, 2000, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. They went through a couple different drummers. You know, he said a lot of things in the press about the current state of Motley Crue. Nikki has gone back and forth with Vince and Tommy over the years he seems to be in a better place with Tommy now. But I know someone that was at the premiere of that movie. Mm-hmm. Really? He sat right across from McMars. Nikki and Tommy sat close to each other. Okay. Vince was on the other side. He came late, too. I remember them right, posting right. photos, and he wasn't even in most of them. Right. Yeah. And then Mick was just doing his own thing. There was very little interaction between all four of them, other than the press photos that they showed 
at the That's premiere. sad. I hate hearing right. that. Right. So there is, I do think it's just, there's so many issues that I don't want to say it's impossible because nothing's impossible, but to pull that, all that out and kind of heal amongst themselves. I don't want to be like this healing guru on this podcast, <laughs> but I mean, I've had people that have had suffered mental illness in my family and I know people who have suffered from drug abuse. So I have the perspective to try to be more understanding about what each individual goes through. Mm-hmm. Most relationships when they're failing or when there's tension or when there's toxic relationships between two people or, who, or however many people, each person has an underlying issue that is deep down in their core. And I can, based on what we know from Motley Crue, again, not knowing them personally, but just based on what we've read and what we've seen over the years and being fans and while what all they've had to deal with individually, you can almost bet that there's that pain in there, okay? With the yeah. drug abuse and, and, and all that stuff. The unresolved stuff, though. Unresolved, Because look yes. at Iron yes. Maiden. Look, they've, they've managed to, to tough it out. Look at Rush. You know what I mean? There's bands who they've been together for an equal amount of time yes. and didn't get ripped apart in the same way. But I also think that, especially when we talk about Rush, you know, their judgment wasn't clouded by heroin use. And their judgment. That's kind of my point, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you, how much are you gonna let this stuff get in the way? And they all have addiction issues, you know. Right. right. Yeah. So I. Yeah. And then there's the pain of having to deal with each other, starting out young kids, except for Mick, <laughs> and then becoming huge in this popularity. And but if they have addictions, they're functioning with each other. Their lack of coping skills, they're functioning like emotional nine or 10 year olds, right? right? Whenever, before they start using, that's not, that's a recipe for right. bad things. Right. Yeah. And then when you're not prepared for that success, which no one ever is, no one's ever prepared for that amount of success. And then you factor in all the drugs and you, fa- and you may have even talked about the people nipping at you for this favor and that favor and this favor and Can't that favor. Can't even imagine. Can't even imagine. Yeah. Um, then you have an element that's not looking out for your best interest, like record companies. They're not looking out for the health of any of those guys in that band. They're looking out at, they're Are looking for s- the bottom, do- you know, the, 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 the dollar, totally. you know, totally. the, the profit of, of, of the albums and the songs. They wanted them like, like Doc McGee says in, in behind the music, they couldn't put them on the road. They, 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 one of these guys or all of them would come home in a body bag. But think about the dirt. So Tom Zutok came and said, like, what are we, it's been, what do you say? It's been two months. Why are they not back on the road yet? And he's like, are you kidding? Right. That's on you if you right. want to do that because these guys are in no shape. Like Tommy's like banging his head against a cymbal or mm-hmm. whatever. And like Nikki's like nodding off. And then Mick's just sitting there with like a bottle of Jack Daniels in his hand. And they're just like, what are you, you know, and Vince just gotten out of the jail. Right. Yeah. So when you have all that success and you're surrounded by people that really don't give a shit about you, they give, they give a shit about everything else, the money that's being made, the favors that they're getting out of them, you know, the drugs, the women, all that. It's, A, very hard to formulate real relationships at, you know, when you're in that state. And all the other issues they have, it is amazing that they're all still in one piece. And we've so talked- what do you think that is? Do you think that's conglomeration of being famous um, drug addiction and just addiction in general? Like, what do you think that, that all those things are kind of a symptom of? Are you talking about them all 
making it in one piece or while that all was going on? Um, both, both of those, I guess. Well, that's a symptom of a lot of things. I don't think there's, I don't think it's a black and white thing. I don't think it's, you know, a lot of people like to associate something and there's only one resolution for it, or there's only one reason. I think there's a multiple various reasons. But don't you think other bands had that stuff too? Like Maiden? I, and I don't, I, I don't remember Maiden being as a, as living in excess like Motley Crue. I don't remember any band really living it. The only person that really compares to, to Motley Crue is Ozzy. Yeah. That's the only yeah. one that I really look at. I mean, obviously there was Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison, the guys from the sixties and but who were famous on that same, right. on the same level. But, yeah. but, but, you know, and then there was all the stories about Zeppelin and, and their excess and I, but, but during they held that it together, but they held for the most part, but well, except for John Bonham. Yeah. yeah. But, but, and there's a lot of issues too, you know, with Zeppelin and, and especially with Paige's addiction as he went, as they moved forward with their albums and their career. I mean, if you look at the last couple of albums with Led Zeppelin, it was mostly John Paul Jones handling the arrangements, handling the sound. That's why there's more as a, more of a synthesizer Based to especially in through the outdoor, but during that time, you know, when we talk about life in the '80s as a rock star. Obviously, Ozzy came from Black Sabbath. One of the reasons why he's, he was no longer in Black Sabbath was because of his lifestyle and how he would just go off the grid on, on at times. There's a great story in that book, Van Halen Rising, about Ozzy Osbourne. I think it's in that book. Uh, sleeping in the wrong hotel room and they couldn't find him for the show. And I think Van Halen ended up doing a longer set because they were on tour with them. I think that's in the book, but again, I don't think it's a symptom of one thing. I think it's a symptom of, well, I think each individual has their own symptoms and they mesh it all together and just form them together and and just kind of implode it. And it kind of, well, I don't know if it imploded until what? Probably the right before the girls, girls, girls into Dr. Feelgood. I think it was simmering for a while. Yeah. And I don't think when you have all the excess that they lived in or, or lived through, it just wasn't healthy for any of those guys. But when you make, when you're making a lot of money and you live this glamorous life or what appears to be a glamorous life, people don't take your inner pain serious. Now, you mentioned Iron Maiden. I don't think Iron Maiden really lived in excess like that. I mean, I'm sure being from the UK, they like a good pint of beer, you know, and they, and they drink. But I don't remember, and I'm sure they did do do drugs because it was very prevalent in the 80s. But I don't remember any of those guys being in rehab for heroin or being taken off the road because one they were endangering themselves. Yeah, that we know of. Right, yeah. right. So I don't... But I think it was the addiction kind of feeding all this, I guess, is why... I, exactly. Yeah. And, and usually with bands, there's maybe one member, or maybe two members that are toxic mm-hmm. that, you know, you Stephen Piercy of Rat talks about his addictions. Yeah. Um, you know, there's other bands. When you have all four, or maybe three out of the four, heavily into drugs, alcohol women living in this, this lifestyle and you put the money in, then you put what could be determined as depression. I'm not trying to diagnose anybody. I'm not a doctor. I'm just, you know, talking about what they've had all had to go through. It doesn't usually end well. That's why I'm so, I, I love 
listening to Nikki Six talk in interviews. I love how he. It's a great interviewer. Yeah. And I, I, just how he's come through the darkness, basically. You know, like, the, you know, he's, he's, he's made it through. But it's because he got sober, though. That's right. the common, right. that's and, the and, one thing and, that kind of made all this happen. His addiction to, to heroin, which is a hard drug to kick, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to do that, he is an inspiration to a lot of people. Yeah. You know, I know there's people out there that have issues with him. I think people are always going to have issues with individuals based on just point of view and just what's going on. But I just think that him especially has really redefined himself. I don't think when I think of Nikki six now, I don't think people look at him as this hardcore drug heroin induced maniac. I think they look at him now as someone who has been an advocate for addiction, an advocate for mental health and mental illness. And I think it's important. I think he's, he's come through all that, and it, he's living a, a positive life, and he's a positive now influence on people that are dealing with similar things. Yeah. I never thought when I read Heroin Diaries that it was going to end up being such a big influence on um, people struggling with addiction. I really mm-hmm. had no idea. And I think I haven't even looked recently, but he is that it was going to come out on Broadway or something, right? I know he's working on that. I don't know what the status is. I know that's kind of like what his project is over the next foreseeable future. Yeah. I don't know how long that's going to take. I, I, I do know he has plans to make it like a rent where it showcases in different cities and it also ties into drug awareness and addiction centers in that area. I think he Super has plans smart. for doing that. This is his way of giving back. And right. you know what? Like, so do you think the depiction of everything that happened in the dirt really apologized to Vince? Oh, let's all come together. We're here for you, buddy. Let's get the band back together. All that kind of stuff. Like, do you think the way that all that was depicted, or maybe just the whole characterization of, of him, had anything to do with... Because I, like, I think when I hear that he's going to do that with Heroin Diaries... It's just kind of a major, like, mea culpa. It's, like, his way of, of kind of recognizing maybe the way he lived in the past and all that kind of stuff and, like, how can I give back? Yeah, I think that's a possibility, and I can see him doing that. I do think that moment in the movie was a way to apologize to Vince. Mm-hmm. You know, and according to Vince, it had never happened before. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how Vince took that himself, but, you know, that scene at the bar, which... Yeah, never happened, but but obviously they wanted to depict it the way a Hollywood story is going to be depicted. They got to, you know, close all the loose ends before the before the credits roll. It's like the way he would have handled it now if he was sober then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I think there's something to it. Um, You know, he did have final okay on the script, so I think he was okay with it, and maybe that was put in there for that specific. From the four members, they did, but they didn't ask other people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I think it it was interesting the way that that um, that was depicted at the end. Yeah. I just think, and I will say this, that it's a great movie. It was fun to watch. The music is a huge role in the movie. It's almost like the fifth character as you go through their catalog throughout the whole movie. Yep. I just wish it would have been about twenty minutes longer, or twenty minutes. I wish. It well, if, been- they, if they would have done like you know, they're not going to have the three hour Godfather movie on a Motley crew, but I do think that if they would add another 20, 25 minutes to that story, they could have done a lot more for each character and for each situation 
And I do think that Netflix should revisit, hey, this was so popular as a release. Let's do a miniseries. Let's do five. Who knows? Nicky would have to be willing too, though. If he's already kind of moved on to their things. Yeah, you know, it's, it's easy. I'm sure it's not easy. I shouldn't say that. But I'm sure this whole process of getting it from the book to the screen was a big eye opener for them and an exhausting effort. I yeah. mean, this was probably when this movie finally came out, I'm sure there was a big sigh of relief that, wow, this is finally happening after all the BS that they had to deal with through years and years of different studios and right. You know, all that, all, all that crap that they had to probably overcome. Maybe they're not willing to take that on. Maybe they don't want to devote that much time to making sure it's done correctly. They would have As, to get the four guys to come back right, and right. everything. I remembered seeing the first shot of them walking down the Sunset Strip, um, which I think is when New Orleans is where they... Yeah, um, and that's a great scene, too. I know, there was a, I know I have a few friends that are upset that it wasn't filmed in L.A., <laughs> you know? As long as it looks like L.A. I mean, how many movies are filmed in Canada? Like right, to pick exactly. Chicago or right, to pick right, right. New York yep. or whatever, yep, you know. Totally. So yeah. I don't have an issue with it. Um, I, I just that that the foundation of the story, the first five ten minutes, are awesome because it kind of really sets the tone for the movie. It just feels like I needed a a, a drink or a bottle of water at the end because I was kind of worn out because it's so it just goes. Boom, 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 over, you know. It does, yeah. it does. Which is why it's, they were snippets, though. It felt like they were just snippets. Mm-hmm. A little splash. I just wanted so much more from every single scene. Anything else you want to add in closing about it that we didn't talk about? I don't know. I think the, the one, I just would like to say definitely the one thing that stood out to me, I was surprised by Mars, like, zingers, his one-liners. Yeah. I was just like, what an awesome dude. You know, I hope he's not going to make it. So tell them, you know, and then when they're kind of preparing their, um, the choreography of, uh, take me to the top, what are we right. going to do on stage? And he's like, let's, then we'll do some of this fucking shit. And that's how, where, that's where the, the guitar like mm-hmm. comes from, where they all in unison do that toward the crowd. Yeah. That was, I was yeah. like, that's where that came from. I was like, so happy to see that. Yeah. So, and I assume that's real. Who knows? But, um, I loved it. So. Well, once again, this is the discussion on the Motley Crue movie, The Dirt. Uh, it's a great movie. If you haven't had a chance to see it, please do. Not too many rock fans have not seen it. Go enjoy it. Go watch it again. I've seen it probably, what, four times? I know you've watched it. I'm probably up to 14 or 15 okay. by now. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it's a great discussion. I appreciate you coming in, Sharice. Thank you very much. Hope to have you on again soon. Great. And uh, Thanks, Jay. Absolutely. We'll, t- we'll talk about, maybe just dive right into Motley Crue in like their whole history next time. Let's do it. All right. Thank you very much. Everyone have a good day. Once again, you're listening to The Hook, and this is Jay Scott. At Progressive, we know there's nothing like the feeling of riding your motorcycle with your buddies on the open road. It's a potent cocktail of thrills, laughter, and pure adrenaline. A feeling that would be impossible to recreate on the radio. Until now. Hit it, sound effects guy. I'm real proud of you, son. Wow, that was terrible. Our apologies for even trying. Quote with Progressive and see if you could save with America's number one motorcycle insurer. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 